Welcome to Lazarus Theatre Company's new podcast, Spotlight On, where we turn the spotlight on to reveal the people behind the scenes, those who make Lazarus work, the creatives, the artists, the process, the creation. Hello, I'm Ricky Jukes, Artistic Director of Lazarus Theatre Company. And I'm Gavin harrington Edra, producer of Lazarus Theatre Company. Hello, Gavin. How are you? And how's your week been? I'm well, thank you, Ricky. Um, it's been good. Um, yeah, it's been a much warmer week for, than it was a few weeks ago. So I've been out on my bike again, which has been nice. Oh. Um, did a nice long ride with my friend recently. Um, but built this wonderful... Uh, not hodgepodge uh studio behind me which yes is, is <laughs> right do do now we've been, i've been working a lot on um an arts council application about how to integrate access into performance <laughs> one of those things is audio description would you like to audio describe where you're currently sitting well yes i'm sitting i'm sitting at a uh, very uh, ergonomically designed uh, office chair with this great new um angle poise arm uh, that holds my microphone with a pop filter in front of it and um and then behind me i have a make makeshift uh sound proofing which is just a duvet over a coat rail um which you wouldn't know it from looking at it of course would you reckon no no, <laughs> no it looks um something like something else yes that's, indeed that's what we'll yeah. Say. yeah it's something else <laughs> no it's very exciting very exciting i was very Thank surprised you. when you popped up i was like oh gosh look he's at uh, abbey road studios i thought no, it look <laughs> uh fabulous yeah well lovely that's great mm. uh, i had some very sad news this morning gavin did you I did. yes there was a very big um sondheim show that we were in conversation about having the rights to yeah. i was getting very excited about a lazarus sondheim mm. and um and uh and uh, we found out today after after several emails saying yes this is very exciting you can mm. have it we found it today no you can't because there's a, a big production plan for a, a west end apparently no. i'm not sure whether i'm allowed to say that or not but i just have so there we are yeah. um, so that's it so that very big sondheim that we've been working on um i mean i say working on the model wasn't built but um i'd stage it in my head um is <laughs> um so it's a no so there's a big musical gap if any of our <laughs> listeners want to write in with their musical theater suggestions what should be the next lazarus uh, musical um did you tell them in. did you tell them that there was a twitter poll that said we had to do a uh sometime well i i think i'm not sure that was legally binding oh but, no um, what i might do is send that on to steve and yes. uh, as he's known amongst his friends and mm. see what he thinks because the public has spoken they want us to do a sondheim so um but there we are right anyway well. on that devastating <laughs> note Hello, Bobby. This week we're talking to our Lazarus associate, uh, Bobby Locke. Uh, Bobby Locke is a composer, a music supervisor, uh, uh, who has worked on projects in theatre, film, dance and animation. Loads. Uh, Bobby's Lazarus journey began in 2016 when he joined the company to compose a brand new score of Brecht's Caucasian Chalk Circle three C's in collaboration with Neil McEwen, who play uh, and that production played at the Jack Studio Theatre. Um, he then went on to revise his duties when that production transferred the following year to the Greenwich Theatre. And also in 2016, Bobby composed a new score and songs for our production of John Gay's The Beggar's Opera, uh, working there with Chris Johan. In 2018, Bobby composed music and songs for our Midsummer Night's Dream, Shakespeare, of course. And in 2019, followed up his Shakespeare exploration on The Tempest, working with sound designer Sam Glossop. As we went into lockdown one, we were collaborating on a new score with some new songs for our now, unfortunately, postponed production of J.M. Barry's Peter Pan. Hello, Bobby. Welcome. Hello there. Thank you for joining us and welcome to Spotlight On. Thank you for having me. First of all, how have you been? What's going on? What's going on? Well, uh, my lockdown has pretty much been in my home city of Liverpool managed to escape London because it was getting a bit like a ghost town and so I've been trying to keep busy creatively uh, without theatre in my life which is all very sad for us. Um, I've been trying to look for ways of putting my music into other mediums, maybe adapting because if, 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 if we keep going the way we are then you have to, you know, figure out how you're going to live. 
Yeah, it's a pretty fundamental question, right? And I think sometimes in the arts, we seem as kind of, I don't know, bossy or spoilt children, but we want to make theatre, we want to make the, and actually it's, it's the way that we survive, not just creatively, spiritually, emotionally, but, but, you know, some people make a living out of it. I mean, you know, admittedly, mine is subsidised heavily by other things and other jobs. But, yeah, it's a way of sustaining, right? Um, absolutely. And how how have you been keeping creative then? So you talk about how do you adapt, but, you know, what, what do you do to keep creative? How have you stayed inspired during lockdown? Three we're in now. We've had three of them. Three, yeah. Well, for, at, the, at the beginning, I don't think many people felt very motivated to be creative but I've tried to give myself a, a strict routine of always playing the piano for at least like two hours a day maybe at night time just so I'm keeping fresh and so I don't forget how to play because one of the worst things when, when I was in London doing lockdown all the public pianos that I would usually play got locked up and you know that's something that I would do if I was going to the shops, I would pass by Tottenham Court Road Station, jump in there, play on the piano, carry on my day. But I couldn't do that anymore. So hopefully when, when the pianos come back, there'll be like little hand sanitizers on top so I don't have to mix my germs with any other piano players. <laughs> yeah, I suppose they're not very COVID safe, are they? This shared instrument no. everyone can have a batch of the notes on. Um, yeah. That's really interesting. They're fantastic, aren't they? They're all, they always become, when I've, ever, I've seen them in train stations, they become a bit of a, I don't know, almost like a destination. And very often you see, before COVID, of course, you'd see so many people around them. It brings such joy. Like music brings such joy and communal experience. You know, just someone even, you know, there was once I was at King's Cross and there's just one little kid just quite literally hammering the notes away, which was quite ear shattering, but it still drew a crowd. People were, still, I mean, I don't know whether they were baying for the child's life or what, I don't know. But, but there was such a crowd around just, just experiencing this. There's something wonderfully communal about music. Yeah, I, I used to play in, in the St. Pancras station quite a lot, just outside the, um, the arrivals gate. And you do feel like all these people who are commuting to work and just living their everyday life, they just need a break in their thoughts. And so, you know, they hear you. And even if I'm playing the Titanic theme or, you know, something soppy, you know, it still cheers them up a little bit, even if it's not my own work. I will survive goes down really well. <laughs> I bet. I, I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? You come out, you, you're just entering London, you know, and uh, you've come out of Arrivals, the doors open, and there's Bobby playing I Will Survive on piano. Hey, welcome to London. I was once playing uh, the Titanic theme, which is like a normal thing for my set. And then someone comes through the Arrival gate and their partner proposed to them. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I didn't plan this, but it works quite well. <laughs> well, the the other thing is, I bet he hadn't planned it, but I bet she thought, I'm assuming they're a heterosexual couple, but, yeah. you know, and, and I bet she thought, wow, he's gone to th such lengths. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get paid, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you should have handed out the tray, excuse me. Uh, brilliant. Um, the whole point of this podcast, Bob, is that we, we sort of talk to people... Um, sort of a bit behind the scenes, if, if that makes sense. Because we, very often, you know, one of the things I get asked quite a lot is, what's it like to be a director? Or what's it like, how do you create shows? Like, what does a director actually do? Like, what do you do? You know, some people think you just stand there sort of pointing a lot and shouting, uh, which is not not really what you do at all. Um, I mean, depending on the process, obviously. But um, yeah, or the day. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's trying to sort of see behind, um, you know, behind the scenes a bit, really. Because I think people do have a fascination with that mystique and that magic and, and how and, and and all of that and how do people um you know how do people create really um so kick us off firstly and tell us about how you became a composer how did how did you get into it all well i think i started composing when i was in high school i remember doing a, a, a few talent shows then but that was just like little piano pieces it wasn't anything majorly impressive and then when i was about 17 or 18 I was hired to write uh, a musical version of um, 
a Peter Pan story. It was like a sequel to Peter Pan. And I think that even though it was a it was a it was a tricky experience, it 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 showed me that okay, I am capable of putting a song together, whether that's a good or bad song. I can put it together. Um, and then I met you. Oh dear, this is where yeah. it gets darker, listeners. <laughs> well, well, we we met when I was an actor. I was I was training with the Fourth Monkey Theatre Company, and you were directing a production of Much Ado About Nothing. And I came up to you one day, and I asked you about um, I think it was about like contracts on how musicals work. And then we carried on rehearsals and all that. And then a few months later, I got a message from you quite out of the blue. Would you like to write songs for uh, Chalk Circle? Which was a very big risk on your part. <laughs> we, we, love, we love risk here. <laughs> yeah, that's intriguing. Yeah, I, and I, I was trying to think the other day, I can't, I can't remember how that all sort of went. You know, isn't it funny how some things years ago are fresh and other things are lost and then something last week can sort of flip completely, you know, like, what did I do last week? But anyway, yeah, I was trying to wrap my brains of how that, that um, first initial conversation came about, but that's, that's good. Yeah, sometimes you just send someone an email. Yeah, that's that's a good start, right? I'd, be, um, I'd been to see, um, I think it was Henry V, so like I'd reintroduce myself to you then. But I think I was, I was still an actor at that point. I wasn't a composer. Um, but then I did Chalk Circle, and and it went down quite well. Yeah, and we'll we'll get into um, chalk and 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 the others in a moment. But um, I do get asked quite a lot actually about the music in our plays, and 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 particularly in the songs. You know, people asking about um, you know what comes first. Are there songs already in the play, or do you put songs in? Um, you know, do you add songs into it? Is there music? How does that all go? And part of me often stumbles and goes, "How do we do that? What is that starting point?" So, so I'm going to sort of flip that to you actually. Bob, you know, I imagine it differs from project to project, but yeah, could, you know, could you take us through the process, sort of how you begin, um, uh, you know, um, and where do you, where's your sort of milestones as a composer, you know, and I, I totally think this is probably uh, how long's a piece of string question, but but generally maybe or or maybe specifically, it's definitely a a project by project thing because I can't I, I wouldn't be able to say well the process on Beggar's Opera was the same as Midsummer because they were com two completely different entities. Um, but usually, usually we have a conversation like months before anything's even happened. And I'll go away and probably put together a, just like a sound demo. It doesn't necessarily need to be in the show, but it'll have a bunch of themes that I think could work for the show. In fact, I was listening back to the very first chalk circle theme that I sent to you when I was all really eager and trying to like impress you. <laughs> and it was awful. <laughs> it never made it into the show. I don't know what I was thinking when I did it. Um, but yeah, demos are, are, are definitely an important way to gauge what page you're on as well as you know, trying to trying to sync up essentially yeah because that's interesting we had we had um the lovely sorcerer on uh, a few weeks ago and we were talking about you know design wise you're sharing images you know um reference points to other productions or maybe artwork or sometimes it's it um you know we've sent each other pictures of I don't know, just a colour or a close-up of an object. And, you know, and actually anyone else would look at it and go, what, what's this got to do with anything? But because then you reference it. But yeah, with music, it might be creating a sound file or it might be um, sharing musical styles or, or influences, I suppose. Um, and then you, you sort of start developing that, I guess, that, that conversation. I think sometimes we send each other, like, songs from shows we already know. But usually it's just easier to to put down your own stuff and then you can you can work out okay well that didn't work so we don't do that again and that did work so we'll keep that and try and work it into something else 
Yeah, and we'll come to it in a moment, I suppose. But there's a there's always that first um, email from you that I always really love, where the first email with just the first few notes of something in a track. And 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 actually, I think over the time we've got, I suppose it's part of the development of the relationship. But also, when you talk about the show and what style the show is going to be in, or what we think we're going to do with the show, then you sort of sort of attached to that. And some of those times that that first track that's landed, you go, right, there's something in that, there's something to go. So for example, the Peter Pan one was the last one that dropped and straight away went, yes. You go, oh my God, yeah, 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 more of this, let's let's have this. So, I, I, but I, I, I would imagine that's quite vulnerable, like putting a piece of work into a something you've tinkered around on a, on a keyboard with, whacking that in an email, sending it off. Does that feel vulnerable or is that just part of it? Definitely, if, if, if you're not 100% sure in yourself that, that's the idea that you should go with. You like you feel a bit naked and exposed to to put something down, which you've obviously spent time on and you put effort into, but you know it could be a bit crap. <laughs> yeah, and I I often think as well with our productions, you know, there's quite a big production team. Uh, the work's normally quite big, so it's also thinking potentially about how it slots in with everything else. Yeah, you know. I- I think the creative team, it's not so bad. It, but from when I get to the cast, mm. that's when I feel most exposed. Because if I, I remember, I think it might have been Tempest. I came in with my guitar and sang some songs with them. And the guitar's not my first instrument, so I'm already feeling a bit weaker. But I know that all of those actors can do an infinitely bad job of performing it than I can but I still have to show them what the idea is in the first place yeah talk about that T- tell us about that Bob because I think people would be interesting to hear about how do you go about that you know is it uh, do people sent piano lines do people get the score in advance or sh- just share how you um workshop it and teach the cast the songs uh so I think the the, the method that I've come up with is is more of a call and response where we we We'll take it line by line of lyric, and and just do a round almost, and and work through a song that way. Um, because most of our pieces are quite choral, so for us we feel like it's better to have the whole cast learn it at a point that sits comfortable in their voice, rather than having them stress and agonise over notes on a piece of paper. Um, and then after everybody's learned it, I can then go, okay, who feels comfortable doing lower harmonies on this? Who feels comfortable reaching for those high notes? Okay, you stand over there, you stand over there. Let's mix it around the room and see what comes back to us. And that that in itself can be quite vulnerable, can't it? Because I'm always conscious that first music day you come in, that normally I always schedule that in an afternoon. So it's a nice afternoon. We've done some work in the morning. Everyone, this is Bobby. Everyone meets Bobby. Oh, hello, hello. And of course, there are some actors who are expecting some finalised score to be put in their lap and, you know, and, and off we go. But actually, it's far more, I'm going to use that word, organic. It's far more organic in that in that sense of let's all sit around, let's get around the keyboard and just start playing with ideas. And actually, it's so fast. I think it's when it's really, really, really worked, it's been fantastic when the actors know you've come with maybe half of it, i.e. here's the ideas, here's the basis of this, this is where we're going to go with this. And now see where it sits in your voices, see where what we can do with this together. Let's. It feels to me far more communal rather than role-based. You know, that person sings on this top yeah. line, this one, Danny. It feels to be far more communal and, and, and company-wise, you know, company way of working. Yeah, um, a Beggar's Opera was the most musical that we've, we've, we've gone so far. And they were all, like, really open to just, like, rehearsing it, but also workshopping it at the same time, open to changes, open to new songs being put in. <laughs> <laughs> open like I was changing um, stanzas of lyrics up until like preview night I think because we just wanted it to, to get it right and we wanted to sit well with them as well yeah and there's such a difference isn't there particularly I mean you know we talk about musical theatre all the time and you know uh, 
it may well be different if you're doing I don't know maybe something semi-operatic or you know or 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 a story completely led by song but actually I think when we're doing work that's maybe it's a bit I don't know whether it's a hybrid it's it's theatre that has songs in it has music in it it's not a musical and we I know we had great debates when we were doing Beggar's Opera is it a musical play is it a play with songs or is it a musical and you know it's it, it become a bit of all of that really and and maybe in theatre we've become a bit um reliant on defining it it is a musical or it is a play and in a way actually Brecht particularly Brecht which is our starting point kind of crossed over all of that well it can have all of those things in it it's storytelling it's a play that you know it's theatre I suppose um what um really before we go down trip there memory lane I'd love to know more about your musical influences uh you know who would you say is your uh, you know um are there any artists, musicians, composers out there you, that you constantly go back to for inspiration or, you know, excitement? Well, I think you know that my sometime love is pretty strong. But, <laughs> but I, I realise at the same time that my, my composition style of writing songs is, is not even close to what Sondheim does. But it's still good to read all of his books and his, his essays about how he does come around to writing his work um, from like a, a theoretical stance. Like I, just before this recording, I was listening to um, Someone in a Tree from Pacific Overtures. And it's a song when like nothing happens for seven minutes <laughs> and you end up feeling really happy. <laughs> <laughs> it it that number always seems to me it's about people watching other people watching yeah. and and then the audience goes well we're watching you watching and so there's something about observation and something about community and communal yeah. which is sort of wonderful um yeah i love that song pacific overtures let's who's doing that please let's get someone to to write in who's doing pacific overtures we want we want to come see it you know, yeah that's how it works isn't it you you put it out into the ether you say what you want and someone does it apparently um <laughs> yeah yeah any other influences uh from a from a a practical standpoint um composers like philip glass who does minimalist music or um the film composer hans zimmer I think for me, not stepping away from theatre, I've been doing a lot of, um, I've been trying to put together like a, a screen composition portfolio. And there's something about their music, which I don't know, it really transfers. Well, it's simple. And it, whereas theatre, you need to be a bit more blunt about it, I think. Yeah, I think there's something there's something wonderful about that. You know, it's interesting when you go and see new musicals and you hear people say things like, "Oh, well, the tunes aren't very memorable, are they?" And I really used to think about that. One, you know, my old job used to be in box office, and we'd go and see shows, and my colleagues would say things like that, and go, "Well, the thing is, is something like I don't know, Les Mis or Phantom have been playing for thirty years, so no wonder the tunes are memorable. We've had them." you know every christmas and easter and we've had them in our popular culture for so long but they're so hard for new musicals and I, but i think you're right and certainly in the work that we've done we when they've been really effective is is of course they've got detail and nuance but there's something quite they're quite a blunt instrument and certainly in that brechtian sense they're there for a specific device you know yeah um, which it's, is it's, which is it's the word more important yeah yeah Okay, let's go on this little trip down the yellow brick memory road. <laughs> memory road. Um, oh, it's all about musicals today. You've got me in a very musical mood. Um, so trip down memory lane. Um, and first off, we're going to listen to a track uh, from our 2016 production of uh, Brecht's Caucasian Chalk Circle. Uh, and this, of course, has got music by your good self, Bobby Locke, with lyrics. Um, we we went with, if I remember rightly, their lyrics actually from Frank McGuinness's translation, but we just slightly altered the scan on some of them, didn't we, I think? Yeah. yeah. It's, it, it's more or less all, all the words, but they're just shifted around to uh, pacing and for the rhyming, I think. Well, I could be wrong with that. Yeah, Let's have a listen. I'm sure Frank wouldn't mind. Here we are. Let's have a little listen to this track. In olden times, in a bloody time, there ruled in a Caucasian city, a governor 
see your face. The officials all take bribes. My brother's starving, my brother's innocent. The taxes are too high in the city of the damned. So many beggars, so many soldiers in the city of the damned. Lovely, yeah. Gosh, it, it music does really take you back, doesn't it? For some reason, I started doing some of the choreography that actually wasn't in the show. It was just what I used to do in tech. Anyway, viewers or uh, listeners will have to sort of imagine my head rolls. Anyway, <laughs> and big thanks there to the 2016 uh, cast. That's a rehearsal track, so you know it's not the final published version, but uh, that's that's a good example of sitting around the old Joanna and bashing it out, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah. Um, what do you remember that process, Bobby? What any sort of particularly memorable moments, instances, experiences of of that? I remember it being quite a, a, a daunting. It felt like the first professional production for me, um, and I wanted to. You know, I, I was surrounded by all these creatives who who'd done so much, and I was just like, "Hi, <laughs> I'm the newbie." Um, but I learned a lot in a way, in a way, all of the shows I've, I've done with Lazarus, it's sort of like, um, like a repertory experience that you'd have in the old days where you, you learn as you go along with a theater company and, um, especially working with Neil, the sound designer he just knew everything and i felt so like safe working with him i felt like i was in good hands that, that, that even if i wasn't doing amazingly he might be able to pull me back and put me in the right direction yeah that's so interesting isn't it about that collaboration and in, in a way you know it can go one way or the uh, one of two ways can't it that collaboration because there's too many cooks involved in this or actually one thing i think is really wonderful about you bob in the shows we've done together is there's an adaptability and that's changed you've you've technically sort of had three sound design husbands i think haven't you with neil and you know and, and chris and then sam so there's, there's a sort of um you know and that that that's always a bit worrying. It's always a bit dangerous because you think, how are they going to get on? They've created, you know, particularly with you as a composer, you create that relationship with Neil and then you have to start again with, with, with somebody else. Um, but I often feel that actually all the work we've done has sort of built on chalk. It's all come out of initial, you know, even if it's the style slightly changed and developed and enhanced and everything, but it feels like um, that was a good concrete base, if you like, that we've, we've built on top of. Yeah, I think because in, in chalk, you, it it does cover quite a, a few styles in its songs because obviously it's the main theme is quite aggressive because of the war that's going on. But then you do have love songs in it and the spectrum. So I was able to to, to stretch creatively on it. But I think going into it, we didn't want it to sound like a, a stereotypical Brechtian show. We didn't want there to be like microphones and shouting and anger like that. Um, we did want to give it a melody. And I think, I think every night after when we came to the bar, there was always, there was always someone humming the main tune which is quite gratifying. Yeah, and I wonder whether that's because the way in, as far as I remember it anyway, was about the community telling a story. So it's about that that group of people at that meeting, that, that you know, people who don't know Chalk Circle, but starts with this meeting of people to decide what to do with some land. And um, and the way they decide, or they, they come up with the way of deciding, is to put on a play, to debate the argument, and, and almost to put themselves in other people's shoes. You know, empathy might suggest a way forward and so they put on the story of um a grusha and, and and what happens with her so you so it feels there's a, some sort of communal element and of course choral singing is totally part of that communal thing you know that that part of that community uh, what's the voice and i and i wondered i don't know i wondered whether part of our musical language has, has developed so well from chalk because we then understood how to use songs in a play 
And actually, I talked to other directors who've, you know, had it put songs in or they've done plays that have got the lyrics for songs, but they don't know what the music is and have to get someone in time. And it's, it's find that musical vocab, really. How are you going to use songs in this show? Which seems to me that it felt like with Chalk, we sort of nailed that because, of course, the play already suggests where the songs are and what the songs do. But, but that in some ways felt to me like it opened the door to the rest of the projects. It's just understanding what the songs are there for, I guess. Yeah, um, every... every song you write has to have a purpose otherwise there wouldn't be any point in us writing it in the first place and i th i think the good thing about chalk circle is that most of the lyrics had a had a, a narrative point to them like there was a reason that they were there they weren't just there for, for decoration or anything they actively um helped the story along so for me, when writing the music, I tried to keep it as simple as possible so that the actors aren't jumping around with the melodies of these lines that should be heard for the, for the audience. It, it's differed through the projects, but I think that's, um, that's, that's how Chalk Circle seemed to me. Breck knows what he's written. Mm. It's all there. Yeah, and I have to say, I think that's very generous because actually other composers might go, well, no, I've written these songs and these songs are the thing. But actually it always feels to me, Bob, that you're quite generous in that you're writing for the production. So the songs are doing something in terms of what the production's doing rather than here's your 12 songs and that's it. Yeah. Actually, there's a sense of um, how do these work in practice? How do they work in performance? How do they work with this bunch of actors that are, are telling a story, you know, and being yeah. honest and open about that, which I think is um, wonderfully generous, I think. Well, our next track is from uh, John Gay's Beggar's Opera, which is our second show that we worked together on, which I guess was an extension on the work we'd already done with Chalk. Um, why don't we take a listen to it first, actually? Uh, so this is To The Gallows. This is featuring the company of Beggar's Opera, uh, 2016 this was uh, music by Bobby Locke of course uh, and lyrics and again I think we did a similar thing with this but lyrics by John Gay but I think we did a, something a bit similar to what we'd done with Frank Gim uh, McGuinness's words just moving them around for the scansion can't remember but uh, let's have a listen and see if we find out Take a step back and see The law is far 
yeah of course that was the track that was towards the end again a rehearsal recording there folks um rather than a sort of published polish thing but uh, so thank you for the company for allowing us to play that uh, but actually bobby it was so music by you but you used john gay's text more as a kind of springboard really didn't you yeah so there was line I, I think we approached it wanting to treat it like chalk circle wanting to take the text and directly change it into lyrics but I, I I feel like the text just didn't lend itself enough phrasing wise and and uh, rhyming so I believe I would take like little snippets that I thought were representative of the song that I wanted to write and then build up around that um Although I don't, I, I don't remember what the springboard for that song was. I think it was you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was oh. you. Because we, we, I think To the Gallows is what we, we, we originally decided on. But that's not how we ended it. No, and of course, we, wasn't this the bit that led up to the electric chair thing? Yeah. The, and the, the, and the, the long notes at the end where the, 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 the. that's it yeah the bit where we we sort of strapped him in didn't we to sort of electric chair him rather than sort of hang him with the noose that had, so we were sort of maybe half expecting um and of course we did this at the um the jack studio theater again in the round actually which we were building on with chalk so that real sort of intimate but it's sort of extremely epic experience um i remember we did it with um white lx tape didn't we strapped to 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 the to the chair and then that went out into the auditorium and i think we even some of the actors even got audience members to hold the end of it like they're culpable you know with they're kind of to completely part and complicit with mcheath's electrocution but it was okay because it was only a story and we had a lovely little end bit uh it was just a story it's just theater but i suppose it did it did build on chalk in some ways in the well i think we pushed the boundaries more because we did start pushing it more into the musical play realm um i guess but uh, but still built on that company telling a story that idea that through song and through words um actually a group of people can tell you the story of mckeith like we had in chalk circle a group of people telling the story of grusha i guess and again having that communal bit yeah yeah and even though there was um there were solo songs in it i'm i'm pretty sure we taught those solo songs to everybody to begin with so everybody in the room felt like they, they knew the song too and they knew what the point of it was so they could react to it, I guess, when they were on stage and and and, and not just treat it as like a, like a, a rest moment. <laughs> yeah, because they're all on stage all together all the time, aren't they? And, and playing with that framing device for all actors telling a story. There's something wonderfully... Uh, imaginative about that then that actually you know a scene that doesn't quite make sense of that character to be there can be there because it's the actor who's part of that scene it's an actor you know they're sporting each other's pieces yeah um yes and of course i i, I love that laugh that the wonderful joe would put in ha 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 at the beginning you know i just sort of burst out laughing when i heard that we probably should have said to people apologies for swearing in it but um there we are we should know now that this podcast will have a few f's and b's um yeah very fun memories i certainly remember um kate the artistic director of the jack maybe after the first preview i can't remember gavin if you remember but but being um just sort of full of glee and over what you know just being really overwhelmedly happy even though even though we ended with an electric chair moment you know but there was something about that that beggars actually brought all of our storytelling together in a very ensemble theatrical way and it wasn't, um, it was still very Brechtian, but not in a serious way that maybe we've done uh, with other productions. Um, I certainly remember her sort of jumping up and down going, oh my God, this is brilliant, this is brilliant. Which was, a, which in a way is a bit daft. It's a bit daft, a bit saft. It sort of doesn't quite make sense, but, but I wonder whether that's the quirky, exciting bit about it in a way, the charm of it maybe. There was a lot more lightness in it, for sure. And I definitely had fun writing some of the lyrics. Um, there was um, a lover's quarrel song, 
between Polly and Lucy. Mm, mm. And that was like a like a sort of boxing match kind because of, because the way we had it, we had all all that tape around and then them circling each other, singing surrounding McKeith, fighting for him. And uh, I quite like the lyrics that I wrote for that one. But I won't repeat them. <laughs> we should have played that one. Mate, that's what we need. We need an archive, don't we? No. We do. Yeah. Get them all together again. Record it. Yeah, this is the big learning lesson. You sort of go, God, why isn't all this recorded? Why isn't this all down? And because, you know, when you're in the middle of production, you're working so hard to get the show on, it opens. And of course, on the fringe, you blink and it's gone and it's closed. And you go, is there a cast recording? And you go, of course there isn't. I mean, <laughs> we barely open the thing. <laughs> I remember it was a very quick turnaround because you'd just done Tis Pity, I think. Mm. And I wasn't sure if I was doing it yet. I hadn't had confirmation. Oh. I, and I went to Tis Pity and there's the leaflet. And then on the back of the leaflet, there's Beggar's Opera. I was thinking, oh, they must have gone with a different composer. <gasps> Scandal. My God. <laughs> and so how did that, I don't remember, how did this sort itself out? And then, and then, and then I, must have, I must have had a, had, had a word with you. Um, you took me maybe, outside maybe and had doing, a word. <laughs> it was pity. And then, and then I think we, we wrote Beggars in about seven weeks. Yeah, that was a bit mental. But there's nothing like an opening night to focus the mind. You know, <laughs> deadline. Yeah, it certainly makes us all get on with it. Yeah, blimey. Um, time's running away anno annoyingly because I, you know, you know me. I could chat all afternoon. Uh, but on to our next track. So our third track is a uh, demo recording uh, of the lullaby uh, that you wrote for Midsummer Night's Dream. Uh, and of course, Dream played as part of our first season at Greenwich Theatre, uh, where we became a resident company there. Um, let's have a listen to it. This is the lullaby from our 2018 production of Midsummer Night's Dream with vocals and composition by Bobby Locke. You spotted snakes with double tongue, thorny hedgehogs, be not seen. Newts and blind worms do no wrong. Yeah, the lullaby was lovely. And I always remember that one because we'd sort of set up this rather beautiful scene with Titania, queen of the fairies, falling asleep in this huge confetti bed of, of flowers that, that we'd made. And the confetti would sort of fall lightly down from the ceiling, really beautiful. And then the lovely Tessa, God, my was our uh, puck, would walk on with a big bin, you know, almost as big as her, and tip it upside down and just dump all this confetti on the fairy queen. So it was really interesting, wasn't it, that the idea that song set up this beautiful imagery, with you really lovely, delicate, colourful, hazy thing. And then, of course, um, Puck just sort of has to put her full stop on it and um, just pop and dispel all the atmos. Um, what do you remember of um, Dream? Because, of course, this is the first Shakespeare then that uh, we'd work together on and, and creating music for. Yeah, um, definitely a different approach again. Uh, chalk and Baggers have been song-based, I guess. You come to Midsummer and it's two two or three songs I think I wrote but for the most part it was like score um, lots of incidental music lots of scene setting music um, and very decorative sounds I think it was strange, wasn't it? Because because I think that this, in a similar way with The Tempest actually, the two Shakespeare's you know, I always think um, because The Tempest was the next show we did together and I, I always feel that Tempest is a bit like the the 
elder sibling to Dream. Dream's the young, sort of mischievous, naughty one, and the Tempest is the really, well, it sounds very obvious, doesn't it? But the stormy elder sibling, you know, the teenager that doesn't want to behave. But yeah, in both cases, actually, there's some level of magic and mystique, but sort of slight tonal shift, I suppose, is what happened. Light magic versus dark magic. Yeah, but plays that are not like beggars and and they're different to beggars and chalk in that maybe they're not song driven. Um, so actually creating atmosphere and creating um, uh, incidental music, I suppose, is is what we were doing with that one. Yeah, you, you want to create a world for these characters to live in. And the, the demo was just the demo because the final track of that is far more, you can, you can hardly hear the, the piano sound. It's lots of glockenspiel. Um, I think that was the main sound that I was using for the whole show because it just felt kind of light and magical. And I remember we had um, two different worlds. So we had the, the court world and then we had that huge transition which was almost like putting an overture as a transition piece. And then we had a third sound, which was the opera at the end. Yes. Now, uh, why have we not got a, we must not have a recording of this. This is like, this is, I mean, some would argue my worst work. Others would argue at some amongst the best. The Absolutely. audience loved it. <laughs> yeah, well, well, yes, for people who didn't see it, of course, one of the big struggles I have with Midsummer's Dream is you get to the end and then they put on another bloody play. And you're like, oh, my God, we need to go to the bar. So we were trying to think of how we could do that. And in a previous production of Dream back in 2012 at the Blue Elephant Theatre, we'd done it as a kind of mime sort of Jacobean Elizabethan dumb show, which kind of was varying effect. And actually, in the end, thought, well, for this new production, what if we expand that into not just, oh, it's another bloody play, but the show to end all shows. So we had a go at writing some very strange little light operetta, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> I remember, I think, I think it was the show where we had all the schools in. There was like three, three school groups were in the audience. And me and Rachel Dingle, were sat in the audience and we were like the opera's coming up <laughs> i don't think this is gonna go down well and they just lost their minds and me and rachel are looking at each other like it worked <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh ye of little faith we always knew it was gonna work didn't we yeah, yeah, yeah maybe not <laughs> yeah peculiar and it really did divide people but yes i mean got, it, it, there was no doubt it caused a uh, response a reaction which is fantastic because i'm forever trying to get you know a performance particularly of early modern drama that causes a reaction causes an effect and i think sometimes we're so conditioned particularly shakespeare's that we know what well, we think we know we sit there and we laugh in all the right places and we already know what's going to happen so actually when you can sort of slightly not just for the sake of it but when you can put a slant on it or just tell it in a slightly different way whoa it breaks all sort of convention it was just a very crass um you know i, I mean i can't even remember some of the lyrics but they all remind you know they all oh. A grim look night, night with you so black, night till night, a lack, a lack, a lack. Yeah, I mean, that was the right scheme. <laughs> You'd had, like, for, for most of the show, it had been this gentle, sweet music. And then the orchestrations with the operetta were like trombone horns and <laughs> just all over, like, like, like a circus. Yes, it was like a circus. The whole thing was like a circus. And I do remember sitting there on one performance, sort of just popping in for notes and just looking at people, looking at each other, go, oh my God, what is this? But again, it just caused that reaction. You think, you know, I, I, it's not that I necessarily want to get back to Elizabethan audiences per se, but we sit there passively in Shakespeare so often. So many times, haven't we, Gavin? We've been to RSC or national productions or other notable theatres. Mm -hmm. And it sort of feels... I don't know, there's, there's something about, I, I already know how this is going to end. Now, of course, we know the story's going to end, but there's no dilemma or predicament or risk. And so in a way, it's kind of saying, well, how can our production just shove a bit of dynamite or a firework underneath it? I don't know. I think we did that. Yeah. 
staying with Shakespeare then, uh, as I say, we moved on to its sort of elder, uglier, miserable um, <laughs> elder sibling. Um, it was fantastical and magical, but, but I suppose what we're saying is a bit more dangerous and, and sinister. Uh, so let's have a listen to this track. This is Come and Two. It's from our 2017 production of The Tempest. This has got vocals by Larissa Teal, music by the good self Bobby Locke, uh, based on the words of Shakespeare. Come on to these yellow sands and then take hands Curtsied when you have and kissed the wild ways west Footed feet me here and there and sweet spirits the burden bear Ka 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 watch dogs bark Ka 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 I hear Ka ka the watch dogs bark Ka 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 I hear yeah, so blooming haunting, isn't it? Blooming haunting. She's, she's lovely. It's wonderful in, in a haunting way. <laughs> what are your rememberings of that production? And of course, you were working with the wonderful Sam Glossop on that one. Oh, yeah. Well, I've worked with Sam on Midsummer too. Yes, um, of course, yeah. And he's just, he's just great. I think working with Neil and Chris, they were amazing um, sound designers too but with sam it's almost like we're on the same wavelength um and we really like we teamed up quite well um and all the decisions we'd make usually together about how it was going to work and he, he he just had so much knowledge it was really nice to work with him and that's such a, as I think we said earlier, you know, it's a bit of a risk there. Like, where does composing end and sound design start? You know, uh, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about how that worked with Sam in terms of you know, presumably must have been overlap. You know, it's not just I'll write this song, you whack it in there. You know, there must be some sort of overlap. Can you remember how that all sort of came together? Well, with Tempest, so I'd written the, I'd, I'd written the music for the storm mm. at the beginning and then his laptop had far more sounds than I did <laughs> and the, I, I remember he had these drums on mm. his laptop um, that just worked really well for like you know the, the anger of the storm um, yes I feel like I would present an idea, whatever that is. And then Sam would always have a way of, of making it 10 times better. And making it work for the theatre, because unfortunately my hearing is not good. Um, so it was nice having a, a really good set of ears to work with. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a pair of ears by remote. And, and I've always very, you know, always really impressed with, um, well, all creatives actually, who jump on our process, because it is tricky, because of course, we've only got three weeks to rehearse it. And, and so much of the staging of our productions is built out of rehearsal. So, so, you know, when I talk to other directors, they sort of go, oh my God, you, you haven't got the whole design down before you go in or the costumes or and you get, no, we've got ideas and we've got a sort of general palette of stuff, but, but actually, um, most of the staging doesn't really come in until about week three, which is sort of bonkers, really, when you go, okay, we probably need a song here, or we, <laughs> you know, I mean, I think for, for Chalk and Beggars, of course, they're, they're there and we know they're going to happen, or we, you know, we think that's where a song goes or whatever. But actually with the Shakespeare, sort of go, there's little hints and we might have ideas, but, but actually so much of that is created or comes about by the play, um, of the actors in week one and week two. And if the company really are playful and they start discovering stuff very quickly, brilliant. If they don't, and it takes a while, you know, and one of my struggles as a director, and I've got to get better at this. And I think I've got a plan of how to do this. And it's all about workshopping and workshopping and workshopping. But, um, but one of my difficulties is, is you sort of, I don't, I don't know where we go because the rumors isn't, the room isn't, pushing that way or finding what way, which sounds very indulgent and wanky. And I, I always remember looking over to uh, some of our, 
uh, long-term collaborators like like Rachel Dingle or Sam or Sam Gossip or Stuart Glover, and you look over, and go, oh, I'm not quite sure, and you can just see their eyes internally rolling. Yeah, <laughs> and they're all very good and very supportive and kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure they're not when they're out the room. No, they're professionals. But you know, this this it's quite difficult, and I'm always in awe of that. But actually, it was really interesting on the Tempest. Note, you know, even when we're in previews, going, I think we need a bit more here or a bit more there. Um, just seeing in the corner of my eye, you at the back with a little keyboard, just what about this? What yeah. about this? It was just fantastic. I mean, it wasn't fantastic because we're up against it and like there's an audience waiting at the door. But <laughs> but at the same time, wow, it's extraordinary seeing um, seeing you you go, you and Sam just, just creating, just creating. And you go, wow, this is brilliant. You know, you just that little keyboard that you had, it, it meant that I could. I could respond to what was going on in the uh, in the room, whereas, say with with beggars, when new material needs to be written, I had to I had to wait until I got home, <laughs> and then do the demo there. Um, but I could write something in the room, in the theatre with Sam, and pass it over to him, and then it would be, it would be through the. The, ma- the main speakers immediately and it's a testament to you both listening to each other but also you know it, 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 a lot of it does come 11th hour because it's built on all the work you've been doing for the previous few weeks and particularly in rehearsal you know feeding as much information out, but you are responding to what the actors and what the room's doing which is just kind of brilliant just note to myself and if Sam's listening to <laughs> and Stuart I spoke to Stuart Glover the other day and he went but Ricky you realize it's terrifying and you go yes I do I totally understand it's terrifying so we're going to be doing lots more workshops going forward so let's do that bit in the workshop not in preview three um time is our enemy here but our final track uh, I think is a really 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 exciting one and it's a demo that Bobby had worked um, again with Larissa actually on vocals here Larissa Teal um, uh, you'd basically this this what we're going to play now the next track is is the first kind of thing you shared with me actually uh, with your initial response to a conversation we had about creating Peter Pan and I think a bit like when I suggested to long-term collaborators Chalk Circle everyone oh no Oh no, God, no, not shouty wrecked. It's all gray and shouting. And well, actually, what if we do it musically, delicately and colorful? And that sort of, you know, do the opposite. And I think the similar thing happened to Peter Pan, really, that people went, oh, Peter Pan, what are you on about, Peter Pan? You know, but actually you were the one of the creators who went, okay, I think Bobby, correct me if I'm wrong here, you just said, oh, but Disney. And I went, oh no, maybe we go a bit anti-Disney. Was no, it not no. you? No, Who was definitely? I I I, I want to put up my own stamp on it for a long no. time after after my first failure. Yeah, but in terms of no, I, I think in terms of people get. I think it wasn't it you said. Oh, we don't want to do Disney. We don't want to do the Disney yeah, version. Absolutely. Yeah, that. Yeah. See, I, I got who else was I talking to? It was definitely you. Yeah, so we we that's the first original thing that we came up with. Is it can't we don't want it to be the Disney film version of Peter Pan. So actually, where do we find that musical voice? Where do we find that the darkness or the magic or the inventiveness and all of that in the ensemble stuff? Uh, anyway, here is the uh, uh, track. As I say, this is this is Yo Ho, uh, with lyrics uh, based on J M Barry's words, vocals by Larissa Teal, music by Bobby Lock. Tingly, ain't it? Tingly. 
And you could, you know, the thing I really loved about that is you can just see the creeping of the fog coming on. You just see the creeping of these silhouettes and shadows of the pirates. And, and you know, one of the big things we've got to work out is how do you double this play? Because there's a lot of characters in it. But yeah, that idea of silhouettes or danger, shadows, you can just sense that, can't you? You can just feel that. Um, yeah. And that's where we're at, Bobby. That's, 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 that's our next challenge, right? That's uh, how do we do... Han, what's tell us a bit about how you came up with that? How did you uh, again? How did you create? Uh, well, the song is in the book, mm. I think. So, I, I mean, I, I it's just a simple line. Um, and one day I just I, rec I recorded how I want wanted the melody to go, and I sent it off to Larissa and I said, "Have you got time?" <laughs> And they're like, yeah, it's lockdown. She, she had time. <laughs> um, and then five minutes later, she sends back a track of her singing it over and over and over again, about eight, eight or ten times. And all the voices you hear in that demo are her, even the low voices, um, which I think is quite a fun idea to play mm. with. That she is... Well, whoever's cast, but, but Larissa is the pirate ship. She is the whole crew. I'm quite terrifying. I wondered whether she was the island, you know. I, 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 when I was listening to the other day, I thought, what if she's the, you know, you could imagine this in the programme. She might like this if Larissa's listening, she can write in. Um, the voice of the island or the island voice or voice island or... <laughs> Oh God. The, the the island, you know, there's something about the Neverland has a voice. And and I'm wondering whether that's, I don't know, this we're just riffing here, aren't we? But I wonder whether that's something to go. Actually, the, the, it has the same voice, but we can manipulate. It's the same person, effectively, is the voice of Neverland that gets very dark and sinister when we get to Pirate's Cove. And then maybe that develops when we get to the Mermaid's Lagoon. And then that moves when we're in the air, like a different quality, almost like that character's almost like an aerial, I suppose and traveling around the island i don't know that could be very exciting and wanky couldn't it well i think back to tempest we used I, I i she recorded the songs and then i played around with them i showed them to you and it was like these are actually too good to just be demos her voice is too her, vo her voice has to be in the show mm. um and i don't even think we had the actors singing we just yeah we let her her voice play the island yeah and i think that could be so, something totally to completely you know continue to pursue anyway with with peter pan this idea of you know and then maybe i don't know maybe in the show the only other voices you get are the lost boys and their little song or I, who knows with lots lots to discover but yeah what if she's the yeah either the voice of the ghost ship you know um or the voice of the island you know and and lots to play there we've got to get back in a room round the old round the old joanna and we could do it soon. Okay. We can do it soon. So, so because of course you're in the pool at the moment. When you're back in London, we can get a visor on, get round a, uh, <laughs> a Joanna, and have a little sing song. Definitely. Um, so, of course, time is not our friend, um, but we do have time to go over to Gavin for the sixty-second challenge. This is my favourite bit. Here we go. We always have time for Gavin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Bobby, here we go. We've got the 60 second challenge here. Um, the rules are very simple. Uh, I'm going to ask you some quick fire questions. You can answer them as fast or as slow as you want. But the idea is to get as many in the 60 seconds as possible. Uh, you can pass, but it won't add to your score. And we'll add up your score at the end and we'll uh, add you to the leaderboard. And then at the end of the season, we'll see who is the ultimate winner. Ricky is going to be our eyes on the clock and when we get to the 60 seconds he's going to use the very famous air horn heard here there we go uh, he's gonna play that sound when we get to 60 seconds and we'll know that our time is up bobby are you ready yep ricky are you ready here we go 60 seconds on the clock bobby uh, beer or wine yeah. Horror or romance? Horror. What's your favourite book? Ready Player One. 
What's the first career you dreamed of having as a kid? Postman. If if past lives were real, uh, what would yours be? Postman. Uh, <laughs> cake or biscuit? Biscuit. Uh, what's your favourite word? Biscuit. <laughs> what, what's your what was your first job? Uh, piano player. Uh, if you didn't have to sleep, what would you do with your extra time? <laughs> Eat biscuits. <laughs> what's the first theatre you saw? Uh, uh, Sweeney Todd, Lipper. Uh, what is your party trick? I can name all the presidents. Uh, where's your happy place? Uh, at the piano. What jobs would you be terrible at? Postman. <laughs> and that's it. That's our time up. Eating biscuits. Uh, let me just count this up. Bobby, tell us how many you think oh. you think you got. Um, eight. So we've had done this uh, before with three other people. All three of them, they all scored 10. I can tell you that you got 13 <gasps> correct. Oh, and we have a winner. Dun, we have dun, a new dun, winner. Dun, 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 dun. Finally, we have broken that 10. We've broken into the double digits properly. Want to be? Yay. Congratulations. Biscuit Congratulations. <laughs> Turn your brain off. <laughs> Just answer all the questions with biscuit and you'll get there. <laughs> Absolutely. And would you want to tell listeners how you know all the American presidents? Um, lockdown boredom. I, I can I can list them all in order in about forty five seconds. Well, sadly, that's all we've got time for uh, this. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say like assassins or something, but of course that's just the ones who have been murdered, isn't it? Um, yeah. That it's. I mean, the the obsession started with assassins, definitely. Blimey, we love it. Huge thanks to Bobby. It's been lovely to uh, talk with you. Um, uh, thank you very much indeed. Uh, well, thank you also for tuning in and having a listen. We'll be back next week with another Spotlight On podcast. Uh, until then, find out how you can get creative and get involved with our year of exploration by checking out our Facebook page, our Twitter profile, at Lazarus Theatre. And there's bits and bobs on our Instagram, at Lazarus Theatre as well. All the details can be found on our website, www.lazarustheatre.com. I've been Ricky Dukes. And I've been Gavin Harrington Redidra. Until next time, stay safe and stay well. Lazarus Theatre Company is a not for profit organisation that relies on the generous support of our friends, angels, and principal supporters. If you wish to support this podcast or any of the work Lazarus Theatre Company is doing, you can visit the Lazarus Supporters page on our website, lazarustheatre.com forward slash Lazarus hyphen supporters, or you can send any amount to paypal.me forward slash Lazarus Theatre. Every bit counts. You have been listening to the Spotlight On podcast hosted by Ricky Dukes and Gavin Harrington Odedra, produced by Lazarus Theatre Company. The music you've been listening to is composed by Bobby Locke and is from our 2016-2017 production of the Caucasian Chalk Circle by Bertile Brecht.